If you'll open your copy of the scripture to Matthew chapter 7, as you know, we've been working our way through this famous sermon by our Lord, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and we find ourselves in the seventh chapter uh, this morning, uh, the first six verses of that uh, chapter, and uh, there we're going to encounter a verse that is controversial, or at least has uh, raised some questions, and we're going to by the grace of God, uh, answer uh, perhaps every question we have about uh, that verse in this old passage. Amen. Amen. I know you're praying. Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Let me read these verses in your hearing, set them in your mind afresh, and then we'll begin the exposition of them uh, for the glory of God and for our own edification. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not mine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Our subject this morning uh, is right and wrong judging. Right and wrong judging. I was watching television one evening, and, or sometime during the day, I don't recall exactly, that doesn't matter, but I saw, interestingly, that this business advertised uh, itself and included in the advertisement these words, no judgment. These words used by that particular business picks upon the moral climate of our day. Uh, A day in which people do not want to be judged for their behavior or beliefs. Thus, to indicate that someone's actions are immoral and destructive is to invite the words of Jesus. (laughs) From the King James Version, judge not lest ye be judged. These words that we just read a moment ago from the New American Standard from Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 are probably the most frequently quoted Bible verses, verse in America, postmodern America. Postmodernism may be simply defined as no moral absolutes, no fixed immutable standard of morality, no what is right and wrong. Those who employ our Lord's words in Matthew 7, 1, imply that no one has the right to judge them. After all, there are no standards by which you or anybody else can judge me. There are no moral absolutes. I don't buy into thus saith the Lord like you apparently do. In quoting Jesus' words, they seem to think that they have Jesus on their side. May I make a judgment? (laughs) They don't. Actually, Jesus does not forbid all judgment. That is clear from where this passage is located. Context is king. Context is king. You can't wrench one verse out of a passage and declare, oh, that's the truth for the whole thing. No, you can't do that if you're a legitimate Bible interpreter. Verses 3 through 6 show us. There's a wrong kind of judgment, and Jesus shows us there is a right kind of judgment. So he does not prohibit all judgment. Further on in this passage, chapter 7, Jesus instructs his followers to make the necessary judgment regarding uh, who is, in fact, a false 
Teacher, you've read these verses. You have to exercise judgment to make a determination about who is telling you the truth and who is not. You look there in verses 15 and 16, Jesus enjoins this upon us as people. He says, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. You have to check out their life, their behavior, what they teach. That's how you know them. That's how you know them. You have to make a judgment. Make a judgment. Later, Jesus was interacting with some of his opponents in John chapter 7, verse 24, and he says this to them, judge with righteous judgment. He's wanting them to judge rightly about him. They were making the wrong judgment. Now, Jesus is not finished with those two statements that I've just read you. He also instructed his original disciples by extension, that includes us, too, to exercise church discipline, which requires judgment about sin. In Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, we must judge. We must see in the church when there is sin in the life of a brother or a sister, and we must address it. The Apostle Paul knew, too, that judging sin is not excluded from our Lord's words here in um, Matthew 7, 1. In 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5, and then in verses 12 and 13, Paul talked about a judgment that he had already made. There was a man in the Corinthian church who was unrepentantly sexually immoral. Paul heard about it, and he had already judged that man, and he had handed him over to Satan. says that in 1 Corinthians 5. He told the Corinthian church, when you assemble together on Sunday morning, what you need to do, you need to expel that man. You need to exclude him from the church's fellowship. You're to judge his ongoing sin. He cannot any longer be a part of the local assembly if he is going to continue in blatant, unrepentant sin. Remove him. You judge him and do accordingly. 1 Corinthians 5. Verses 12 and 13, Paul goes on to say, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not, know, do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Our job is to, when there is sin, deal with it. We have to judge. So to claim that judgment is off limits entirely is false teaching. It's a mere misinterpretation of the word of God. Christians must judge between God's truth and the devil's lie. Between godly behavior and ungodly behavior. Sadly, the church today too often fails to distinguish righteousness and, judge and unrighteousness. It fails to judge sin. You say, why do they do that? I, uh, it's because they think loving means you do not judge. If you're loving, you don't judge another's behavior or his belief. In reality, genuine godly love tells the truth. In 1 Corinthians 13, 6, it says this, Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. 
Love and truth are not in opposition to the mind of God, in the mind of Christ. Love is devoted to the truth. To love a person is to hate his or her sin. Sin is destructive. Sin messes up the relationship between a person and God. Sin brings all manner of troubles in their life. And if you love people, you want to help them avoid all the things that will ensue because of their sin. So to love them is to get them out of it, help them to do that which is pleasing to God. You want them to be blessed, not cursed. So if you really love someone, you will tell them about their sin and you'll help them to avoid the consequences that sin brings. So this idea that you can love someone and, and let them go merrily on their way and sin, which is destructive, is not true. It's true. The truth of the matter is we must judge. So in this passage before us, Jesus is not proscribing judging. He is not prohibiting judging. He is presenting here the right and wrong ways to judge. So you have to keep that in mind. So whenever you hear someone bring out the only Bible verse they know to protect their lifestyle, Matthew 7, 1, you need to say, hey, hold on a minute. Let me, why don't you read the whole passage? Context. Our first heading here is forbidden judging. Forbidden judging. Do not judge. Let's just stop there and begin to work on what it means here. The sense of the word judge used here is these terms harsh censoriousness are severe unmerciful hypocritical judgment of others it's also a self-righteous approach to others and their sins the pharisees they were past masters at this they're notorious for the hypocritical unmerciful judgment that's the kind of judgment they delighted in. And probably, Jesus' own original disciples struggle with this too. So our Lord says here, when you read, do not judge, in the grammar of the original text, it says this, stop judging. Apparently they're already doing it, and Jesus says, stop that. If you're doing that, stop that. If you're harsh and hypocritical and uh, unmerciful in your judgment of others, stop that. The kind of critical, self-righteous, condemn condemnatory judgment Jesus is addressing must not be found among his people. We're not to be that way. James 4.11 is really pertinent to this. James 4.11 in view will uh, look there if you'd like. And it'd probably be good for you to do that. You can kind of follow me better. And we can see what the word has to say. James 4.11. No doubt James was quite aware of what Jesus said here. And he comments on it in regard to the people to whom he was writing. James 4.11. You can see some words and we'll pull out some truth here. Uh, related to our topic this morning from Matthew 7. James pins, Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. Let's stop there at the semicolon and let's begin to unpack this for a moment. Speaks against those two words, derogatory words. That's what it means. Denunciatory speech. 
Another term, slander. In fact, that's the original, slander. This kind of speech can be untrue. To speak against a brother or sister. It's also a careless, thoughtless, critical speech against another. It's not to be found against in, uh, with us. Judges. Next word. Crino. And this word, uh, judges, crino, same word used in Matthew 7, 1. Same Greek word. It means to criticize or stand in judgment to condemned. Condemn. To those who do these things, James tells us here, to speak against and judge is to speak against the law of God. That's what it says. Don't you agree with me? It says, speaks against the law and judges the law. That is the law of God. Whenever any believer speaks like this against another believer in these harsh, condemnatory ways, the slanderous ways, they are really, really speaking against God's law, ultimately. They are displaying a disregard for divine law and, in effect, claim to be superior to God's law. I don't think anybody in this room would claim that, would you? But, in effect, that's what goes on. It's to be above God's law and not under it. The law of God, what are we talking about here? Ten Commandments. By the way, did you know the Ten Commandments is a verbalization of love? (laughs) Each one of those commandments in the Decalogue is an expression of love. The first four, love to God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the, the remainder related to us, we love our neighbor as ourselves. The Ten Commandments is really an expression of love. Love God and love your neighbor. So that kind of speech that is being talked about here, that kind of judging is off limits to the believer. It's to be off the table always. Now, back in Matthew 7, 1, we want to complete verse 1. It says, so that you will not be judged. You need to understand, number one here, that you are not the final judge. So it says, so that you will not be judged. You're not the final judge. <laughs> we can't ever stand in the place of, uh, as the judge of other people as if we have the final say about them. We do not. Further, the idea here is that when we do that, we're saying, I have all the wisdom and knowledge necessary to judge someone. Surely, really, you do? We do not. And it says, so that you will not be judged. Now, the question is, who's going to judge us? Not men. It doesn't really matter what they say. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) Who who matters is God. You wonder, how do you know that? doesn't say God. This is how I know it. This is how scholars know it. Because in the grammar of the Greek text, it's what is called a theological, a divine passive. It's talking about God is the one who does the judging. He will. Jesus elaborates in verse 2. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. 
And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you by God. He sees people judging. He hears the words. He sees the attitudes. He sees all of that and he will, because he is the judge, he will judge those who have been doing the judging. So the way you judge. Now, if you're going to judge hypocritically, if you're going to judge uh, harshly, if you're going to judge in, uh, with condemnation, do understand that God will be judging you. You'll measure it back to you. The standard you use, you say, whoa, oh, I, I know everything I need to know about someone. Oh, really? No, you don't. Measure, judge by the standard of wisdom and knowledge we claim to have in judging others. That's what it means. Don't do it. So come back to you. Say, well, I just judge a little. <laughs> I only judge, uh, you know, it like in the measuring cup, it's a, a quarter of judgment. You're going to get it back. You measure a fourth, you're going to get it back. You just don't do it. The way we treat others, God will treat us. We've seen this principle already in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, you can see it there in verse 14 and verse 15 of Matthew chapter 6. You see this principle. The way we treat others is the way God will treat us. You'll notice it says, For if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive you your transgressions. So if you want forgiveness from God, as we've seen this already, but you won't forgive others, God says, I'll withhold the forgiveness from you. I'll withhold blessing. I'll withhold uh, close communion with me from you until you forgive. So the way you treat others horizontally is the way God will treat you. Now, I need to hasten that here because this talk of judgment can make somebody think, oh, my, my, oh, what about my salvation? Do understand the judgment of Christians here is not a matter of eternal destiny. That's already settled. It's settled at the cross. Our judgment is not going to be somehow that we miss heaven. We're not going to miss heaven. When God judges you, that doesn't mean you're hell bound. You're already in the kingdom, remember? You're a beatitude person. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're in the kingdom. We possess it. We're not going to be kicked out of the kingdom. Salvation for the saint is secure. No one can snatch you from Jesus' hands. No one can snatch you from the Father's hand. There is nobody on earth or heaven that can do that. So you're eternally secure. So that's not what's being said here. But there is the issue of chastening. I already mentioned the fact, if you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you. Not that he won't forgive you the sins and get you to heaven, but you're going to not have the kind of fellowship and communion with him that you would like if you don't do that. Same with judging. We've received mercy. And the reality is, if you've received mercy and salvation from God, you will be a merciful person. And in everyday living, mercy to men brings mercy from God. And be merciful to them. So the kind of judging Jesus for, for, forbids is this, this hypocritical judging, this criticism, people finding faults with people. And some people are really good at it. 
man, they can find every fault there is a person has. Harsh judgments. Hypocritical judging is the next uh, heading. I've talked about it a little bit, and we'll further talk about it. Jesus says here, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye? Do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Interesting, Jesus talks about specks and logs. Uh, perhaps he drew from this illustration from his time as a carpenter in Nazareth. It's also a humorous illustration uh, here. The word look <laughs> habitually seeing the speck in your brother's eye. Every time you see him, you see the fault. You, you can see it always. It's there. You, I mean, you're looking and you say, oh, there it is. What is a speck? It's a splinter. A, a piece of dry wood or chaff. It's something insignificant. That's what's represented here. It's something that's small. It's a small moral defect. But for the hypocritical judge, that's all they see. They can't miss it. But interestingly, they have a log in their eye. What's a log? It's a heavy piece of timber. Such as a beam that's in a room. Maybe, look at that beam there, running across there. Can you imagine having something like that in your eye? And I can imagine when Jesus talked about the speck and the log, and he's talked about the beam. Everybody knew about that, a beam that would go across the roof of a house, a bar, a door. Everybody was familiar with it, and that would be the image in their mind. And you'd think, well, that's crazy. Here's a guy who's got a splinter, and here's the other guy who's a hypocritical judge, and he's got this beam in his eye. But he doesn't notice it. He can't see it. The, uh, the humor is obvious here. Here's a man running around with a two by four protruding from his eye. And he's so good at seeing the speck in someone else's eye. Wow. Hmm. Now, notice Verse 4, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye. And behold, the log is in your own eye. When Jesus says, how or how can you say? He's speaking with a hypocritical audacity to presume to help someone whose spiritual condition isn't as bad as the helper. That person with the speck is a lesser sin. In fact, the English word I is drawn from a Greek root from which we get our word ophthalmology. ophthalmology the eye surgeon. <laughs> the hypocrite wishes to be a spiritual ophthalmologist. He wants to perform eye surgery on a man with a speck in his eye. Now, I'm going to tell you, 
just let my, my imagination run for a moment. I have a speck in my eye, and I go to the spiritual ophthalmologist, and he walks in. He's got a two-by-four sticking out of his eye. I say, uh-uh, brother, you ain't touching me. Your problem is worse. He has a more serious problem, but yet he wants to help a brother who has a less serious one. The question then, or the statement would be, physician, heal yourself. Let me tell you something, and I hope we get this. If a person is really interested in righteousness, he will deal with sin in his own life first. Judge yourself. See your own sin. Remove it by confession and repentance. Then you will be capable, able, and right to go and help a brother or sister. Specks and logs represents those things. Sin, small and large. Deal with your sin, small and large. You can help others. Now, let me say something here. No sin is small and insignificant. But a sin may be small in comparison with more heinous offenses. Jesus portrayed these far greater sins as the log in your eye. Now, stay with me here. All sin renders a person guilty and worthy of God's wrath. All sin. Whether it's a small sin in relation to a a greater sin, every sin that every human being commits is worthy of divine wrath. In fact, uh, one little sin is worthy of eternal damnation. You may think nothing of it, but because God's infinite holiness, it requires damnation. Further, some sins are greater than others. The Bible teaches us this. For example, in Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 13, uh, it says this, speaking to the prophet Ezekiel, uh, quote, the Lord said, quote, yet you will see still greater abominations which they are committing. God was taking the prophet Ezekiel on a tour of what was going on back in Jerusalem and in the temple. And he was showing him the sins of the people there. They've been exiled, but yet the sins were great sins. And he was saying, I've shown you some of them, but I'm going to show you even greater sins. In John 19, verse 11, we see the same thing here. Jesus is standing before Pilate, the Roman governor, of course. Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For the, this reason, he, will, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Because the person who delivered Jesus over to Pilate had planned it. He had seen uh, Jesus and knew he was Messiah and the son of God. But yet he delivered him over to the Roman governor. Pilate had his own responsibility, but his sin was lesser, a lesser one than the one who delivered Jesus over to him. Now get this point. All sins will suffer quantitatively. The eternal wrath of God in the lake of fire. In other words, the length of it is forever. But all sinners will not suffer qualitatively. 
they will not have the same punishment. Because there are greater degrees of punishment for the greater sinners. Uh, let, me, let me put it, you got a garden variety uh, next door neighbor who's a moral person. And that person dies without Jesus Christ and they go into hell. And then into the lake of fire, ultimately. But then you have Adolf Hitler. Who do you think is going to suffer more greatly? Adolf Hitler. Sins are greater. Responsible for killing six million Jews. And all the other atrocities. Think about Judas Iscariot. He betrayed the Son of God. He was with Jesus for three years, heard his unmatched wisdom, saw his incomparable miracles. He saw all of that and he sold him for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus said it had been better for that man not to have been born. His punishment in hell is going to be greater. He'll be in hell as long as the garden variety, a moral person next door to you, but that garden variety next door to you, since will not merit the greater punishment. There are degrees of punishment in hell. Matthew chapter 11. We see this principle enunciated by our Lord Jesus Christ. Here, Matthew 11 verses 22 through um, 24. Jesus uh, had done miracles there among these cities. They had much light. They had seen the supernatural accomplished by him. Verse 20 of Matthew 11. And Jesus pronounces a curse upon these cities, Chorazin. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. You know why? Because they had less light, Tyre and Sidon. And the people in these cities, in verse 21, that Jesus pronounced the, uh, the, the, the curse upon, they had more light because they saw Jesus' miracles. They had more insight. Their, their guilt is greater. And then he turns to Capernaum, Jesus' headquarters. <laughs> he lived there among them. And he said, um, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted heaven, will you? No, you will descend to Hades place of the damned for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom which occurred in you it would have remained to this day and Sodom was notorious for its wickedness but Jesus said boy if those miracles had occurred there they wouldn't experience the judgment of God and you saw the miracles coming from me and you will be brought down to Hades they had more light greater guilt greater accountability greater punishment Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. There are degrees of punishment in hell. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 17 and Jude 13, it talks about blackness of darkness. Some, some of you people are writing this down. I guess I better turn there and make sure I'm saying it right. Second <laughs> Peter 2.17. Just see something. Peter is uh, 
addressing false teachers. People who invade churches and, and lie to people back in the first century as they do today. There are people who stand in pulpits, they're on television and they're on radio and they write books and they lie. They do not tell the truth. They're ripping people off. They're giving them false teaching, damning people's souls. I want you to understand something. They're not going to get away with it. And the word of God says this about them. Second Peter chapter two, verse 17, about these false teachers. These are springs without water and mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. Black darkness. Jesus talks about outer darkness, black darkness. There's a greater punishment awaiting them for what they have done. These guys who've lied and lie. They're on TV lying. They're on radio lying. They're writing books lying. Scripture says black darkness has been reserved for them. That black darkness will be in the lake of fire where they'll be punished forever and ever to a greater degree than others. Jude 13, Jude's talking about them as well. And use the same terminology, black darkness has been reserved forever. It's been reserved for them. It's like you go to a restaurant and you've already set major reservations. Oh, yes, sir. Come, here's your seat. Black darkness has been reserved for these false teachers. God has made the reservation for them. And they will pay for their sins. I'll tell you one more I need to share with you. Hebrews chapter 10. The reality of um, rejecting Jesus Christ. I'm talking about this theme. uh, Greater punishment. It's greater sin. Hebrews chapter 10, 29. Says here. Hebrews 10, 29. How much severer punishment. Do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Trampled underfoot, that is, to, what that meant was a step on. Step on. And as regarded unclean, the blood of the covenant, there'll be greater punishment. Greater punishment. Back in Matthew chapter 7, verse 5. So greater sins. Greater punishment person who treats Jesus Christ and the gospel with contempt will pay a greater price. Greater price. Hebrews, uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 5, it says here, Jesus continues, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your... The hypocrite here is full of pride and self uh, deception. He's blind to his own faults, but keenly aware of the shortcomings of others. Jesus said, take it out. Take this out. When you rightly judge, you can then rightly judge. Take that uh, log out of your eye. Then you can see clearly. What he means by that, I believe, is see clearly God, himself, and others. And then when you do this, then you're able to help another take the speck out of the, your brother's eye. Yes, you can see the speck there. You can see the moral defect. You can see the sin and you help your brother. Yes, you can do that then. 
David, king of Israel, is an example of this. Remember his great sin with Bathsheba? He asked the Lord, created me a clean heart. And once God did that, then he said, well, I'll teach sinners your way and that they may convert to you. David was able then, let me tell you about sin. I've been there, done that, and God's changed me. He's cleansed me. Forbidden judging, hypocritical judging, discerning judging. Here's the final one. Verse 6, do not give to what, what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine. Let's try to identify this. Now, you have to exercise judgment in order to comply with Jesus' command here in verse 6, right? You, you've got to evaluate uh, dogs and, and swine. Now, Jesus is using dogs and swine as an analogies. Let me tell you why. In Jesus' day, dogs were vicious, they were wild, they were unclean. He was not talking about domesticated pets. They were wild street dogs. They had a ravenous appetite for disgusting foods. Remember Lazarus in um, Luke chapter 16, verse 21? He licked the sores, those dogs did, of Lazarus. In 2 Peter 2, 22, mm, Peter talks about the false teachers. He talks about the, the animals that would, uh, the dogs regurgitated stomach contents. I was trying to say that because it's getting close to lunch. and I was trying not to ruin it for you. Dogs and swine were people who were unclean. They were despicable people. They represent people who are perverted and ungodly. These are people who don't want to have anything to do with the holy things of God except to trample them underfoot. To walk upon them. A gesture of extreme contempt and scorn. Rejecting the gospel. That's who the dogs and the swine are. In Philippians 3.3 3, they are called false teachers who they are they don't want the truth they treat it with contempt we have to recognize that we have to make judgments about people like that we're not to when Jesus says do not give what is holy to those individuals the dogs and the swine he is saying do not force the gospel on them they do not want it walk away from them leave them to themselves in Matthew 10, verses 11 through 15, that's what Jesus instructed his disciples to do when they went out on their missionary journey. And he said, they won't receive peace. What you do, you shake the dirt off your feet. Paul did the same thing. When he preached and the Jews said, no, we don't want it. And they were contemptuous and blasphemous. Paul said, okay, I'm going to the Gentiles. Because you don't, um, you know what pigs would do? Swine, the term is used for them. They had hooves. And they would turn and attack if <laughs> they didn't get what they wanted. Tear you to pieces. Jesus says, that's why you don't do it. They don't want it, turn away from them. I hope you understand that we have to judge, right? We 
just need to do it the right way. That's part of living as a Christian. You judge, you critique, you criticize, you evaluate. So you can do the right things and live the right way. It's how Christ wants us to live as his people. Judging rightly. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for uh, the, the truth here. We thank you for clarifying the issue. Those who would use your word to keep us from doing that which you command. Help us to take these matters to heart and deepen our grasp of them. That we might be effective saints in a world of sin and even within the life of the church for your own glory and praise. These things we pray in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen.